Hello and welcome to The Devil's Party. I am Anthony Oliveira, PhD culture critic, dumpster raccoon. This week we're opening The Seven Seals. I am in my apartment, which has no water, so I am appropriately abjected and stinky today. <laughs> uh, this one's fun because it's kind of... There, for example, there's the least amount of comments I think we've ever had in a long time after weeks of the most. Um, there's something kind of wonderfully pure about this week's reading. It is what it says on the tin. It is just catastrophe after catastrophe. Even truly the most like unhinged of commenters I read, Clarence Larkin was like, we must not spiritualize these matters. These are ecological disasters. Like there's a way that there is nothing to read here, except that it is um, some of the most poetic in uh, the most terrifying ways, the most sublime ways. Um, what happens this week? Um, okay, so we've done the other six seals, and we're on the seventh. The lamb is going to open the seventh seal, the last of the seals. Now, you might think that means <laughs> the book of Revelations is over. Uh, however, there is a, an odd kind of concentric structure to Revelations where it's going to end up kind of doubling back on itself, and it will be hard um, for us, as it has been for a great many commenters, to figure out how to reconcile uh, the timeline of this book. But that's a problem for another day. For today, we've got seven, we've opened the seventh seal, and it turns out kind of nestled inside the seventh seal are seven trumpets. Um, seven trumpet blasts that will plague mankind with suffering. <laughs> uh, when the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. And I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. Half an hour. Really weird. Uh, and I expected to have to cut through a thicket of interpretations of this half an hour. And again, was unbelievably struck by how little anybody has done with this. Again, not even the kookiest of readers seemed uh, to be trying to make this like half hour mean anything. For example, um, again, I'm just looking at Clarence Larkin's Book of Revelations. Uh, the silence that followed the breaking of the seven seals was preparatory for what was followed during the sounding of the trumpets and the pouring of the vials. This silence was something remarkable. The four and twenty elders ceased their harp playing. The angels hushed their voices, and the cherubim and seraphim and all the hosts of heaven were silent, and so great was the silence that all heaven was awed by it. And to add to the noticeableness of it, John added that it lasted for, and here his big, bold, all caps, half an hour. Here's where I thought he was going to go, like, off the rails and be like, oh, half an hour means this, this, and this. Now, but instead, he actually just has kind of, like, an astute literary reading of the half an hour. Now, half an hour is not long when engaged in some pleasant enjoyment, but it causes a nerve-breaking tension when we do not know what is going to happen and when a life is at stake a minute or even a few seconds seems to be hours. The suspense of the half hour of silence in heaven was intense. But why that half hour of silence? What did it portend? It was the period of silent preparation for the awful judgments that were burst forth under the trumpets and vials. And that's it. Um, that's really weird to me. I really expected, like, we're going to have times and time and half a time soon as a phrase, and it's going to melt everybody's mind in the commentary. Uh, for some reason, this half an hour has not occasioned any. And I think, 
for once, Clarence Larkin is right, that the point is that's pretty much like it's a specific amount of time enough that it lets you think about what it would mean to be silent for half an hour in like a a space that is full of life, right? Like that's the point. We've seen heaven be this kind of kind of exhausting engine of sound, of music, of shouting, even of pleading, right? Um, there's been something almost cacophonous about the experience of heaven. We talked about sort of the horror of having to sing these songs over and over again, and they were specifically the same song twice, which itself was filled with repetition, right? Um, John is a great poet, and he understands that in the same way that that repetition has an effect, sudden silence has an effect. There's something wonderful, uh, again, sublime about that sort of absolute. Imagine a a, cresce- a a symphony that pauses before it suddenly begins the giant crescendo. And oh boy, what a crescendo it is. Oh, I should note before we get to the um, the trumpets, I read a really interesting piece this week about uh, how insistent John is on the, the, the temple structure of heaven. Um, and the piece was thinking about uh, the way that is itself a kind of solace, the way that is a kind of way to imagine that even after the destruction of the temple in 70 CE, um, the temple somehow endures, right? The temple is still in the heavenly space, functioning exactly as it did on earth and more perfectly than it did on earth. There is something, I think, quite insightful about that, that the there is a reason these apocalypses in the first century are so, the Jewish apocalypses are so interested in replicating temple practice because they kind of record a lost practice on earth. Um, this sense of like, as on earth, so, uh, so above, will come up again this week. Um, okay, so as you might expect, now that you've we're eight uh, books into uh, Revelations, um, another instance of seven has come up. And what do we know about instances of seven in the book of Revelations? They happen a lot, and they always break down into four and three. So too this week. Now, these are not just any angels. Uh, it says, I saw these seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. Seven angels is a extremely recurrent uh, motif in Jewish and indeed uh, Christian uh, apocalypses and uh, theology. Um, when heaven gets to have a kind of courtly structure, there's almost always seven at the top. Um, this happens in the books of Enoch. This happens in actually one of my favorite places it happens, which is extremely germane to this week, is the book of Tobit. Um, the book of Tobit, which I have talked about before and which is uh, extremely important as a text to my graphic novel, Apocrypha, is a kind of, I've talked about it before, but it's kind of a Jewish fairy tale um, about 
a young boy whose dad has gone blind because birds pooped in his eyes. Uh, it's, a, it's a long story. <laughs> Who is out on a quest to find this magic fish to cure his dad's blindness and to marry a princess. It's like a very classic fairy tale. I've talked about it many times before when we were doing Paradise Lost when the angel Raphael showed up in Paradise Lost because Raphael in disguise um, is like the guide for this young man as he goes on this quest. Uh, and there's a moment at the end of the story when Raphael unmasks and reveals his sort of angelic glory and he gets this great little speech where he talks about how it's okay for an angel to lie if he's doing it on behalf of God like it's fine that he was in disguise and deceiving them because he was serving God's glory and I just want to read you his fun little monologue um I will now the so he's like they've cured the dad's blindness uh Tobias which is the son's name is now married uh, etc. Um, they're rich and whatever. <laughs> I will now declare the whole truth to you and will con conceal nothing from you. Already I have declared it to you when I said it is good to conceal the secret of a king, but to reveal with due honor the works of God. So now when you and Sarah, that's his new wife, prayed, it was I who brought and read the record of your prayer before the glory of the Lord. And likewise, whenever you would bury the dead, which is how he lost his eyeballs. Um, and that time when you did not hesitate to get up and leave your dinner to go to bury the dead. I was sent to you to test you. And at the same time, God sent me to heal you and Sarah, your daughter-in-law. I am Raphael, one of the seven angels who stand ready and enter before the glory of the Lord. Um, this idea that there are seven key angels uh, is everywhere. In fact, it is even in uh, the Gospel of Luke when uh, Gabriel approaches um, Mary to announce, to perform the Annunciation, to tell her she will conceive. He says, uh, I am an angel of the presence. Uh, canonically, there are in like, for example, Catholicism, which has an apocrypha, which includes the book of Tobit, and therefore <laughs> names the archangel Raphael, there are four, in at least Catholic tradition, four named archangels of the seven. Um, and we met them all in Paradise Lost. You, you probably remember this if you were listening back then. Gabriel, Michael, um, Raphael, and Uriel. The, remember, Uriel was the guardian of the sun in Paradise Lost. He's the, the all-seeing one. Um, but there are three uh, others that are unnamed in any Christian texts, um, but are available if you look into some of the more, let's call them deuterocanonical <laughs> texts. Uh, and in, for example, First Enoch, we get the names of the other three, Seraquiel, Remiel, and Raguel. Um, my little headcanon for this... <laughs> <laughs> for this notable absence of their names. Um, and it is just a headcanon. It is not established anywhere else, although it does form one of the major bases for my graphic novel, um, is that the reason these three are unnamed is because they have been stricken from the Book of Life. <laughs> that when the archangels fell, three of them, three of the seven of the angels before the presence, led the rebellion against God. Um, and that's why their names are excised. But also, you'll notice here in the book of Revelations, the four and three structure is quite important um, and is quite uh, notably different. The first four 
are here in chapter 8. And they are the trumpets that release the judgments from above, the judgments of God, the sort of ecological catastrophes that are released very clearly from heaven. Um, in fact, they're almost all, they are all? They are all, uh, yes, they are all literally cosmic. They come from the sky. Um, in chapter 9, we will get the other three. And the other three are explicitly diabolical. They are explicitly demoniac. They come from loosed powers from below, the bottomless pit, um, the chained beings below. <laughs> uh, again, just my personal headcanon, but that structure is very apparent here in Revelations. The four, the four cosmic and the three demoniac. Um, Okay, let's get into them. Well, before we can, another angel <laughs> shows up. He is distinctly not one of the seven. Some, uh, some, let's say, out there people decide it's Jesus. But even most evangelicals are like, that would be immaterial, and like you would never call Jesus another angel. Um, he's just a different one. Another angel with a golden censer came and stood at the altar. He was given a, a great quantity of incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar that is before the throne. Again, like explicitly mirroring temple practice. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth. And there were peals of thunder rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. The first of the kind of objects flung from heaven's uh, battlements down below. Um, and there's a great way that this like signifies, it's almost like a flare being shot before an attack, right? Uh, it's a great little way to make the like, those prayers, remember the, the people who were begging uh, for God, the martyrs, um, there's a way that this now becomes the the signal fire for the deluge that begins after as these trumpets are blown. Now the seven angels who had the seven trumpets made ready to blow them. Again, like a sentence that actually doesn't do anything except sort of build up dread, right? We don't need to know that they're getting ready to blow them. Um, it's just a great way to pause the action before these kind of calamities fall one after the other. Uh, the first angel blew his trumpet and there came hail and fire mixed with blood and they were hurled to the earth and a third of the earth was burned up and a third of the trees were burned up and all green grass was burned up. Um, I landed on burned up a little repetitively there, but like really amazing, right? Uh, also, you, what do you notice? I mean, you probably notice what almost every commenter notices, which is there's like, there's a kind of 10 plagues of Egypt redux happening with these seven. Um, the, the blood, <laughs> the hail and fire, like, and again, purely ecological as, uh, as a disaster here. You'll note that it says all green grass was burned up. That's, Super weird, because if you are a pious reader of this book, you will almost immediately notice when you read the next chapter that the locusts are specifically forbidden from eating the green grass. But there, it's clear that it's all burned up here. It's again, like, we have to remember this is a literary text. It is not interested in self-coherence. Um, a third 
is the measurement that is now given. You will recall that with the uh, with the six seals, we saw a lot of fourths. Um, I think what's clear is there's kind of a spiralizing um, escalation happening here. Uh, I there's one commenter I I read said that obviously this is a reference to Ezekiel five. If you look up Ezekiel five. <laughs> Uh, Ezekiel was basically the world's crankiest performance artist, uh, and a lot of Ezekiel, when you read it, is, well, he's not the crankiest, Jeremiah's the crankiest, but, you know, Ezekiel eats, like, Ezekiel bread, which is, like, poop bread, uh, and, uh, Ezekiel 5 is him being like, hey, you, cut off all your hair, put a third of it on fire in the temple, and then, like, do another gross thing with a third of it, and then another gross thing with a third of it, it's like, I don't think it has anything to do with Ezekiel at all, but uh, <laughs> make of it what you will. I saw another person who was like, a third means these calamities are only befalling Rome, uh, which would be nice to believe, except that the same commenter made the same point about a fourth meaning it only befalls Rome. Does Rome control a third of the earth or a quarter of the earth? <laughs> like, you have to decide. I think the point is things are getting worse as we move through the signs, right? Um one of my favorite uh, uh, pop culture facts is that the um, one-third pounder from McDonald's failed because most Americans can't understand fractions and they thought it was smaller than the quarter pounder. Uh, <laughs> look it up. It's true. Uh, but a third is bigger than a quarter for our American listeners out there. Uh <laughs> <laughs> I'm just kidding. You know I love you. Please don't smite me with your many nukes. Um, the second angel blew his trumpet, and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea. A third of the sea became blood, a third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. Um, the sea... When I was a kid, I always imagined this meant, like, all bodies of water. Uh, it is very likely, of course, that John is thinking of the sea as the Mediterranean. He has no frame of reference beyond the Mediterranean, right? Um, but, uh, again, like, how how you could separate a third of water tidally into blood is a kind of an open question, but not if you take it as a literary device. It is wild that John here seems to imagine the concept of a meteor without really any any like he never saw jurassic park like he, <laughs> with the meteors he saw presumably were small little streaks in the sky and yet the image here is of a mountain falling into the sea it's really um quite amazing in fact i spent some time this week thinking about uh what frame of reference would john have for example of uh contemporary catastrophes uh you'll remember for example that laodicea uh one of the ways we can date the the book of revelations is that he talks about laodicea you'll notice i don't know how to pronounce it uh <laughs> it was destroyed in 60 ce by an earthquake and yet he talks about it as being prosperous which means that it must be late enough that it has recovered by the time he is addressing them, right? Which is how we push uh, a later date for Revelations. Um, but that also means within his memory, it has been destroyed. Uh, similarly, Sardis and Philadelphia in um, 
uh, a little earlier in 17 CE were decimated by earthquakes. Um, of course, the biggest catastrophe very much in John's lifetime, uh, un- undeniably in John's lifetime, was the eruption of Vesuvius, right? Uh, 79 CE. Um, Vesuvius's eruption is attested to across the Mediterranean basin. It was, it affected uh, basically the entirety of the Mediterranean basin, if not perhaps even the world's uh, climate patterns, and certainly the amount of light um, that was seen that year. And I was just looking um, at contemporary accounts of uh, of the Vesuvius eruption and what it was like um, for people who lived it, and, and per- perhaps even in documents that may have circulated. Again, like how much John is putting his hands on Roman documents is kind of an open question. But like, for example, this is uh, Pliny the Younger. Um, Pliny was, he's a historian. He, he was 17 when Vesuvius erupted, and he was with his uncle, Pliny the Elder, who was like the Roman uh, fleet commander. Um, And uh, they tried to effect an evacuation from um, Pompeii when it, and Herculaneum when uh, Vesuvius erupted. Uh, So they were there. Uh, And in fact, that's where Pliny the Elder died. Uh, It's unclear how he died. He seems to have... Um, He could have been asphyxiated by a a plume of the toxic gas. He may have had a heart attack. Um, There are several unkinder historians who didn't like him who say meaner things about it. Um, He does seem to have been in the midst of an evacuation effort uh, at the time with his nephew, uh, Pliny the Younger, who wrote down what it was like. And this is his account of it. Um, And I'm sorry if I cry because I find this really quite moving and beautiful (laughs) and terrifying. Uh, It reminds me of like Cormac McCarthy. Like it's got like the road quality about it. Ash was falling onto the ships, darker and denser and the closer they went. Uh, They're they're bringing the the fleet, right? Um, Now it rains bits of pumice and rocks that were burned and shattered by the fire. Broad sheets of flame were lighting up many parts of Vesuvius. Their light and brightness were the more vivid for the darkness of the night. It was daylight now elsewhere in the world, but there the darkness was darker and thicker than any night. Then came the smell of sulfur, announcing the flames and the flames themselves. Then came the dust. We had scarcely sat down when a darkness came that was not like a moonless or cloudy night, but more like the black of closed and unlighted rooms. You could hear women lamenting, children crying, men shouting. There were some so afraid of death that they prayed for death. Many raised their hands to the gods and even more believed that there were no gods any longer. And this was the last, one last unending night for the world. I believed that I was perishing with the world and the world with me. Um, sorry, I'm going to pause. <laughs> Woo, sorry, a little spikesy for me. <laughs> I, I don't know what it is. I think it's maybe the reference to Cormac McCarthy I just made in The Road. There is something about this human effort that endures past this kind of apocalyptic stake to me that makes this so capable of being beautiful, even though it is such an obvious destructive horror. Um, There's something of the way it captures this kind of Wagnerian terror in us um, 
the, by the way, this reference here to the third of the ships were, that were destroyed, it's the only real reference to history at all in this passage. It's the only actual um, reference to, like, human endeavor on Earth. It's, like, so purely climatological, so purely ecological what's happening um, that if it weren't for those ships being destroyed, uh, you would um, not even know humans existed at all, right? That's how fully cosmic the stakes are here. Um, and yet it, it is Pliny and his uncle on, on a ship who are trying to affect that evacuation, right? Um, the next one is probably the most famous of these trumpet blasts. The third angel blew his trumpet and a great star fell from heaven, blazing like a torch and fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of the star is Wormwood, a third of the waters became wormwood, and many died from the water because it was made bitter. Um, this, to me, sounds much more like what you'd expect a meteor to sound like to someone uh, living in the period, like a, a star falling, right? And there's something more ethereal and haunting about its fall, whereas that that awful meteor crash of the previous one here has a kind of ethereal beauty, Um Wormwood. Uh, the Greek word there is absinthos, uh, which you can probably figure out means something like absinthe. Indeed, it is the herb from which absinthe is made. Um, it is called wormwood because they thought that eating it um, killed the worms in your intestinal tract. Uh, it is indeed, of course, very bitter if you've ever sipped on absinthe. It is also very potent. Um, if it is in water, even the smallest part of absinthe in water affects the whole taste of a very large amount of water. Um, but of course, the reason this is most famous is that the Russian word for absinthe or wormwood is Chernobyl. Um, and indeed, the imagery of Chernobyl is wrapped up perhaps permanently, with this uh, trumpet blast. In fact, if you ever go to the uh, Chernobyl Memorial, there is an image uh, dominating it of an angel blowing a trumpet. Um, many 20th century uh, apocalypticists made that event into like, oh, that is the fulfillment of revelations. The the end times are upon us. Um it's been a while since then, but <laughs> the idea, there is something horrifyingly, like, what would you, if you were a first century writer, how would you describe the effect of radioactivity in water? You might describe it as a bitterness that kills people, right? Like, <laughs> there is something, um, many died from the water. Uh, it's, it's a weird, wild, uh, that is when Revelations is at its most magnificent to me, is when it seems to be trying to describe something that is beyond its capacities to describe. Um, and of course, the activity of humanity since, uh, and the way we can sort of imbricate these meanings on top of it, is one of the sort of weird pleasures of Revelations, right? This mapping of, for example, Chernobyl onto this, and like, ooh, he saw it coming. Um there is a kind of frisson of perverse pleasure in that. It is perverse. There is something uh, death-worshipping about it, I think. But it is a habit that, for example, I much indulged in my teen years and perhaps I'm still indulging with this podcast. Um, 
The fourth angel blew his trumpet, and a third of the sun was struck, and a third of the moon, and a third of the stars, so that a third of the light was darkened, a third of the day was kept from shining, and likewise the night. Again, like one of the Egyptian plagues, and very similar to one of the uh, seals we saw earlier when uh, darkness descended, but now, of course, um, in thirds. Um, Then I looked and heard an eagle crying. Does your version say eagle? What does your version say? Other things it could say would be a vulture, or it might say an angel, because the word used there is bird of prey. Um... And you have to decide what kind of bird of prey it is. Is it a metaphorical bird of prey? Is it uh, a vulture? Does God use vultures? Or does God use eagles? It seems like he's perfectly willing to use a vulture (laughs) to me. Um, In either case, it it shouts, it talks, which is not the biggest, weirdest animal behavior in this book, for sure. Um, But it's a weird kind of thing to have this eagle show up. And obviously it gets turned into like jet fighters by some of the um, late 20th century interpreters uh, and it, and announced with a loud voice as it flew in heaven, woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth at the blasts of the other trumpets that the three angels are about to blow. Again, like this wonderful effect of delay, of waiting, um, of building up suspense. Uh, And the next three in chapter nine are indeed usually called, because of that triplicate, the three woes. Um, If you want to join us for the uh, reader questions, we're going to be over on patreon.com slash miyakupa. I'm going to be taking this week's pretty much right now. Um, But if you're enjoying the podcast, I would love your support. I'm so grateful to the support everyone has given me. Uh, while I've been doing this project. Uh, So if you're enjoying, please check that out. Um, Otherwise, you can now pre-order my book, Dayspring, which, uh, not a huge spoiler, has a lot of this Revelation stuff in it. You can also check out in a month from now, October 11th, uh, my new comic, Captain Marvel Assault on Eden, will be dropping. Uh, And I think as I've been recording, we are now actually fully funded already for our queer retro pulp anthology, I Want That Twink Obliterated, which (laughs) those of you who've been following my career know is a line I put in a comic uh, with Wiccan and Hulkling and is now going to be the spine of um, a collection of queer stories in a genre and genres that don't usually, uh, didn't usually include queer people, uh, including one from me. Um, Okay, next week, uh, The Three Woes. Uh, Till then, (laughs) thank you so much. Be brave enough to be kind. Bye-bye.